0: Welcome to Someday Is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. And welcome to Some Days Here. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni, and this is the last episode of season two for Some Days Here. It's kind of hard to believe. Um, But as I look outside my window um, and I think about the names and faces and people who have been with us through this season, I'm really, really grateful that we've been able to continue to introduce to you some really remarkable women over the course of this season and I hope you have enjoyed getting to know these fabulous Asian American women and again if you have other women that you would like to have interviewed please uh, drop us an email with recommendations for other people you'd like to hear from we're excited because we're about halfway through season three and there are some really fantastic interviews that are coming your way so as our last guest for season two, I am thrilled to introduce to you Susie Gomez. And for those, for those of you who were at the Some Days Here live event at the end of February, Susie was one of the uh, hosts for the event, and she is just so incredible. So we um, actually taped this episode right before the live event and right before our entire world kind of shut down. So in the midst of this global pandemic, it's kind of wonderful on one hand to think about um, some of the great opportunities we've all had just a couple months prior to this time um, when we were all able to give each other hugs in person versus Zoom calls and virtual high fives. So I am thankful that I had the chance to get to know Susie in person at the live event But I'm excited to introduce you to her today. Uh, Susie, um, as you'll hear in our interview, she is Canadian by birth, and she is a Korean by heritage, Mexican by marriage, and American by immigration. So she has a fantastic story that you'll get to hear about all those different parts of her life. But what I've been so drawn to is Susie's a really excellent communicator, and she currently serves... um, in Long Beach on staff with Light and Life Christian Fellowship. Uh, Prior to that, for 14 years, her and her husband uh, served in South Central Los Angeles. And Susie is the mom to four beautiful Latasian babies. I love that new term, Latasian. And she has her M.A. in Intercultural Studies um, from Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, Susie is uh, kind and brilliant, and I think you're going to love this episode with her. So welcome with me, Susie Gomez. This week's Did You Know? is Susan Ann Cuddy, who was a trailblazing Korean-American woman in the U.S. military. Her parents were the first married Korean couple to immigrate to the United States after the U.S. opened up the country to Korean immigration. After initially being rejected for being quote-unquote oriental, which for those of you who are listening, Oriental is a derogatory term, please always use Asian. Um, So Susan was rejected for being Oriental, uh, but she was later accepted into the US Navy. She became the first Asian American woman to become a WAVE, a program that allowed women to become enlisted officers for the duration of the war to free up men for combat positions. Susan worked for the United States Naval Reserve as a link trainer and became the Navy's first gunnery officer. Wow. Outside her career in the military, she continued to blaze trails. In her personal life, she defied miscegenation laws by marrying a white man, which was illegal in Virginia, where she lived at the time. Cuddy became an intelligence officer breaking codes for the Navy and later joined the NSA, where she ran a think tank of 300 linguists and other experts gathering Russian intelligence. During the civil rights movement, when her travels took her to the segregated South, where she could have, quote unquote, passed as a white person, she instead would demonstrate solidarity. She sat at the back of the bus with black people. She used the colored bathrooms and she complied with Jim Crow laws in order to make a statement of support for those who did not have a choice. Susan Cuddy is remembered as a secret keeper, a brave officer, and a community icon, one of a generation of Asian Americans who rushed to serve the country despite the racism they faced at every turn. This is this week's Did You Know? Well, welcome back, friends, to season two. Someday is here, and I think what's so fun about today's conversation is um, you'll get to meet and hear Susie Gomez's story. She is she will be because we're taping this just days before the Sunday's Here live event, but she mm-hmm. will be one of the the um, hosts for the entire day, and so mm-hmm. it's just so fun to be able to have an opportunity pre well, for me at least, pre-event to be able to hear some of Susie's story. And those of you that were at the event get to hear her story in detail now. So I'm so excited. Susie, thank you for being on Some Days Here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Season one was awesome, so I'm
1: excited to be on season two. <laughs>
0: Oh, every time we would message each other, I'd be like, you're listening. That's so awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that is great. Okay, so I'm thinking about how we actually first got connected because I heard of you first from your husband. Yeah. (laughs) Your husband's Marcus, is that right?
1: Marcos. Yes. Marco, I called him. Yes. Yeah. He's kind of like my agent too. Cause he's always telling people, have you met my wife, my mom, oh. my, my mom, <laughs> my wife speaks <laughs> as well.
0: <laughs> I know. So I met Marco in the green room at the Catalyst Conference, West Coast Catalyst Conference. Yes. And, um, and he did, he just said, you need to follow her on Instagram. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I think that's how it all began because you followed me back. And then over time, yeah. I feel like there's just been, there've been so many mutual people in our lives. Right. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that we didn't know each other before that. Yeah. And he, he came home telling me, you need to follow
1: Viv And I was looking you up on YouTube and all that. And so I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I never knew her before this.
0: Yes. So yeah. So yeah, that was well, it's thing. Just, it's totally. And I just love it because there's, I think, a, a shared... Um, connection, meeting other Asian American women who are in the, in the areas of speaking and Mm -hmm. uh, writing, um, leading, Mm -hmm. teaching, all of those areas. And so there's kind of a uh, because I don't think we've often seen that very much, meeting someone who is kind of similarly wired is always a treat. So right. um, and An I sense connection. that with you. Yeah, totally, mm. totally. Well, I know Susie has um, been one of the hosts for the Global Leadership Summit that comes out of Willow Creek last, last August, I believe. Yeah, a social media host social media host which was fantastic and so I actually know you through Sam as well I met Sam at the global issue summit the year before so he's everywhere yes so there's just two degrees of separation in Mm -hmm. all the areas so anyway Mm -hmm. well Susie tell us a little bit about your ethnic journey some of what was it was like for you growing up and we'll just take it from there
1: sure uh You know, in my bio uh, these days, if I am introduced or if I'm introducing myself, I often use the line uh, Korean by heritage, Canadian by birth. Mexican by marriage and American by immigration. So yeah, the (laughs) the (laughs) multi-ethnic. Yeah, the whole multi-ethnic identity is just built into who I am, and you know what family I was born into, what country I was born in, and then where I immigrated and what I married into. Um, Mm. So it's almost inescapable. It's a calling for me, and um, yeah, I think for me, from an early age, I, um, you know, there's a lot of people who will say that they, they weren't really cognizant of their racial identity until much later on, or they didn't really unpack it until maybe in their high school or college years. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's true for me, but I think from an early age, maybe because my dad was pretty vocal about um, our Korean identity. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of Koreans would say this as well, but my dad was particularly vocal about it. And I think that, you know, when I look back on my life, I can see that I, I was always kind of passionate about it, more so than other kids around me. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of Korean folks will talk about how we grew up with the narrative of, um, especially if, with my generation, um, if, if your parents were baby boomers, uh, you heard about the Japanese occupation and you heard about all of the... Um, I mean, a lot of it was unhealthy, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of it was just kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, there's just so much division between the Koreans and the Japanese and, you know, we weren't allowed to buy Japanese products. There was so much like unhealed hurt that was there. Um, But I think because my dad talked about it so much, it made me investigate like without even knowing the name for it. Like it it made me um, aware of like racial tension and... Mm. um, and and knowing that it made me feel uncomfortable inside, like longing for reconciliation, even between Koreans and Japanese. And um, he would also, you know, be very vocal about like, you know, if anybody on the playground ever ever tries to say something to you about being being Korean, well make sure you stand up for yourself. And mm. um, Yeah, he just kind of built it into me to be aware of my ethnic identity. Um, and I think he tried to sort of shield me from what he inevitably thought would be the shame or the, um, or the hardship of being a minority. Um, mm. He he kind of tried to prepare me for that. Um, and I Do have an you older like, brother. Uh huh. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, I have an older brother um, who's four years older than me, and always kind of played that older protective brother role. Mm. And. I, I don't know how it registered for him. I don't know if his journey was the same as mine. Um, He was always really athletic. He was popular. He was, you know, he he didn't have like ethnic identity issues that um, I think a lot of Asian American men might talk about where, you know, Mm -hmm. they they kind of felt like they were out of place because they weren't white or because, you know, they weren't the the superstar athletes on the field or whatnot. Um, In in some senses, my brother kind of like, maybe because we grew up in Vancouver as well, where there tends to be a bigger Asian population. Um, mm-hmm. I don't
0: think that that dynamic was as
1: as strong for my brother, but it was for me.
0: Mm. Like among, like at school, like what was the breakdown ethnically? Like there's, like, was there like a, um, a strong Korean, like mm-hmm. Korean, uh, I, I'm picturing like me growing up in Boulder, Colorado, like it's just right. white, but we did yeah. have a group of families that played mahjong and poker and had our mm-hmm. little you know, our little parties yeah. and stuff, but, and compared, you know, SAT scores. Was it like that for you or what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> SAT scores. That's so true though. Um, yeah. So for me, uh, it, I
1: did have a shift happen in high school because in my elementary school years, I was one of very few Asian kids. Um, mm-hmm. and then in high school, junior high high school is when there was an influx of, um, more Asian kids in the suburb of Vancouver, where I lived, Vancouver mm. proper. There was, uh, there already was a, a pretty large population of Asian people. Uh, mm-hmm. But where I lived, it took a little longer to trickle in there. Um, so my elementary school years are very aware of the fact that I was one of very few Asian kids. And actually, one story that I tell a lot is um, this, was, this was one of those key moments um, in forming my racial identity. I think I was like, I must have been in second grade. Um, I was on the playground, I was on the swings, and there was this one blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy that was next to me swinging. Mm-hmm. And he was younger than me. So he had to have been first grade or kindergarten. And he turned to me and he said, hey, what are you? Are you Chinese or are you Japanese? And I said, oh, I'm Korean. And then he looked at me and he said, no, you're not. There's no such thing. And then he oh jumped goodness. off the swings. Yeah. And he just walked <laughs> away. So for me, you know, I was just kind of, I was a little shell-shocked because I was like, what the heck is he, you know, like I don't exist to this boy, um, right. but I, that, that happened a lot. You know, throughout mm. my elementary school years um, in Canada, there were still a lot of people who didn't even know what Korea was. And then, you know, <laughs> you get the whole question of like, are you South Korean or North Korean? And you're just like, oh my goodness. Like, have you ever met a North Korean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But for me, yeah, this boy, you know, telling me basically that my people were so in- insignificant that he didn't even know what we were um, mm. was one of those things that I think made me I think, you know, Korean people tend to have, it's good and bad, you know, it's a strength and a weakness where, um, it's almost like a, you know, like a younger sibling syndrome mm. where you kind of feel like you have to prove yourself because you get, um, the word for it in Korean is mushihe. like, it's like, um, uh, you almost, you're underestimated um, Ooh. because we're that small peninsula, you know, we're, we're not China, we're not Japan, mm. um, and we've kind of grown up in this era where we've had to put ourselves on the map. Yeah, and um, you know, for years Korea was considered—you know—it was called the Hermit Kingdom, and it was so homogenous. It was so um, just like Koreans. Like in Korea, it was it was very rare to see people who are non-Korean in Korea. Mm. So it's only just a recent phenomenon where we've become this like known entity and i think Koreans take a lot of pride in in yeah. having come you know come to success in the recent oh my recent, god
0: yeah so big time i mean seriously <laughs> like in all categories it's been pretty right. astonishing yeah. parasite just happened parasite, right yes yeah. i'm just thinking ah just so right. many layers. It was fascinating because, and well, maybe we could link this up in the show notes, but I just read an article about the breakdown of Parasite, like just kind of figuring out the socioeconomic and the mm. communist, capitalist, like how America actually played into the English language in the movie. I mean, it was just like right. was such a fascinating, there's so many layers to that movie. Right. I just, oh Yeah. It's worth watching several times, yeah. Wow, wow, so much. So anyway, so you were born in Vancouver or... Actually, I was
1: born on the East Coast, so close to Toronto. Um, So lived in Toronto until I was six, moved to Vancouver. And actually the reasoning behind that too, um, so my dad knew that Hong Kong was going to switch over um, Mm -hmm. to China uh, in 97. And so just looking at the projection of what sort of the, the cultural shifts that were going to happen, uh, he knew that a lot of people from Hong Kong were moving to Vancouver. Yes. And, you know, I grew up hearing my dad saying, you know, China is going to be the next superpower of the world. Mm. Um, he wanted us to learn Chinese. I mean, that didn't happen, but... <laughs> 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 You know, just foreseeing where like the cultural hubs would be, he thought mm-hmm. it would be really strategic for us to move to Vancouver. And yeah, I, throughout my high school years, just saw that wave of immigration happen. And yes. there's a little bit of like racial tension that happened with that too, even in Vancouver, where um, you'd see signs that said, welcome to Vancouver, and it would be like x out and people would, would write Hong Hoover. Wow. Um, Right. And you couldn't tell if that was like people from Hong Kong who were trying to make their mark, like we're here, you know, or (laughs) what I think it actually was, was, um, you know, the same people who, right. I mean, there was actually a big sign across this one tunnel that we would drive by every Sunday where somebody would consistently spray paint the words that said, keep Canada white. Uh. Really. yeah, I know. So people have this perception that Canada is this place free of racial tension and, you know, it's definitely not. Um,
0: mm. But yeah, so yeah, us moving so there was, was... Was strategic. You know, it's yeah. so fascinating because I was with a group of seniors um, and they were talking about the Japanese internment. Mm-hmm. And then I did not realize that it went all the way into Canada. And so oh, one yeah. of the families, you know, he was talking about his internment in Canada and yeah. uh, and some of the, they like, they honestly, they, they, they were in the mountains and they found in one of the mines um, a broken piano. And they figured out how to bring the piano into the internment camp and they rebuilt it and somehow was able to barter piano strings. I mean, it was like, and they figured out how to wire in electricity. I mean, the innovation was extraordinary, but I had no idea that the internment camps... Took place in Canada as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't this like racial utopia. (laughs) Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Vancouver. You know, so interesting about ninety seven. I was. I moved to Hong Kong for a year in eighty four, which was Mm. the first time they started negotiating. Fifty years, this is going to happen. So ninety seven was this projected thing out there. But from that moment when they locked in the the Hong Kong dollar on the stock market, in the Hong Kong stock market. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have this crazy, you know, bottoming out of the financial, you know, uh, response to the whole Hong Kong Mm -hmm. turning over to China. But in that moment, um, the wealthy, you know, if they couldn't get a British citizenship or a US citizenship, they were going to Vancouver, they were going to Australia. And it was this immediate brain drain. And I think that was my first memory of understanding what privilege looked like that Mm. people who had the the means financially could actually escape a horrendous situation ahead of time um and yeah it was all new to me at the time so
1: right yeah yeah. And then it, it gave this, it fed into this narrative in, in Vancouver too, where the immigrants, you know, if you were Asian, you were Chinese, you know, and, mm. and then it was this perception that the Chinese were coming and taking, because the people who were Im- who were able to immigrate were wealthy. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were coming and buying up property and driving up real estate prices. And I mean, we see a lot of that even now, but um, yeah, it, it created racial tension because of that influx of immigrants from Hong
0: Kong. Mm. Wow. Okay. So now that was the Canada part, the Korean part. Now go in the other, explain the other, (laughs) your other definitions or descriptions, descriptors. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so
1: much. And, and again, I mean, we could do a five hour long podcast and still not cover (laughs) so many of the things that I can look back on and see where God, you know, like placed a a passion for, um, just racial justice, um, Mm. in my heart. Um, but, yeah, so you know growing up, I, I thought that maybe I would be an investigative journalist. I thought maybe uh, maybe I might become one of those journalists that do exposes on on um, you know certain practices that are racially discriminative, or mm. I don't even know if that's the word but um, <laughs> I just had that kind of passion, and if you know who Sean King is. Um, mm-hmm. he, yeah he's kind of like he he actually he and I actually have the exact same birthday so september seventeenth nineteen seventy nine um wow. I feel like he in some ways is living my dream job, but I know by no means is he living an easy life at the same time mm. um, but i love I love some of the the work that he does
0: mm-hmm. anyways,
1: um there were different plans in store for me, uh, and so for me, my parents were actually missionaries in Ecuador, and um I think this is part of how um you know them, I always get the question because I married a non Korean, um, mm-hmm. my husband is Mexican. You know, I always get the question, you know, how did your parents handle that? Mm-hmm. And I think because my parents spent so much time in South America, mm. uh, they were already familiar with Latin culture. Um, mm. My dad likes to pride himself on the fact that he learned Spanish and at, at a later age, and um, I think for him because he saw that, you know, we're Korean, he's, my husband's family is Mexican. In LA, two of the largest immigrant populations are Korean and Mexican. Right. And so for my dad, when, when I told him, hey, there's this guy, you know, we're talking about marriage. For him instantly, it was like, well, what is God doing in this? And Mm. she was thinking like, okay, you know, there's a Korean and Mexican coming together. This could be a really beautiful thing. So I know, I know that's not the journey that a lot of people have. A lot of people had to pray for years and went through the silent (laughs) treatment with their parents and all of that. But yeah, just... Graciously, I, I feel like um, we came together at um, a time when my parents were ready for it. Mm. Um, I, I also was, I mean, I know it wasn't incredibly late, but I was 30 when I got married. So mm-hmm. I think for my parents, they were just like, oh my goodness, you know, just hurry up and get married. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they, they, they were ready to embrace somebody. Mm. And how did you two meet? We actually met, so the first time we met was at a conference. It was an urban youth workers conference. Mm. And so, yeah, he was out in Chicago. He was a youth pastor out, you know, like um, North Lawndale, um, Chicago. And I was in South Central at this time. We kind of mm. skipped over that part. Maybe we'll circle back to it, but <laughs> yeah. we were both in urban ministry. Yes. Um, and so he had met actually some of the girls in my youth group the year before Mm -hmm. And they were out, I was emceeing this conference and, um, you know, my girls were just kind of hanging outside after the, after the session. And so they were talking with him. And when I went over towards them to say, hi, we were introduced by a mutual friend. And mm-hmm. then of course, you know, you've got youth group girls who are like afterwards, like, ooh, okay, so, you know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the very first time we met and then nothing happened for a couple of years after that. But we, we met each other and we'd see each other at the, you know, at, at different conferences. And then he ended up moving out to California to go to Fuller the- Theological Seminary where mm-hmm. we both did our master's um, ah. in intercultural studies. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And uh, we joke with people all the time that part of our practicum was to date somebody outside of your own culture. And I, I know people believe us. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, we joke about that, but then, you know, we obviously did really well in that category.
0: That's so great. And That's um, beautiful. Well, you actually have in your small group right now, my son's. Yes um girlfriend and she's yes. mexican so it's like okay yes. this is like i couldn't picture a better bible study leader to help right. navigate some of this, right. the beautiful cultural differences so i love that it that was the first thing that that was our connecting
1: point when she came up to me she was like well i'm mexican and, and my my boyfriend is is asian and then he broke down who he was and i was like oh you're connected to Viv and,
0: and that's <laughs> just like, case right there see small world yeah. but it's yeah. so fun to be able to see that so yeah. so all of these things come to play you've got two kids is that right I've got four kids four <laughs> kids oh my goodness yeah. okay double okay so yeah. it's just complete okay four kids and yeah. how old are your kids now my Latasian babies. Latasian. That's a beautiful. Yes.
1: Latasian. I know, right? Latesian. Uh We thought about maybe naming one of them Latasia, but then we we're like, oh, that's too obvious. So um, <laughs> we've got an eight year old. So I've got a girl, boy, girl, boy. So okay. um, the oldest is eight. The second is six, uh, almost four, and almost
0: two. Wow. So you just went every yeah. other year. Right. Like, let's Sounds just. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. That's so fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So it sounds, I mean, from your journey, which actually, can you go back now and share oh, a little right. bit about the South Central piece of it too? I, <laughs> I would love to hear yeah. some of that story. This is awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, so like I said, in my co- in my early college years, I had thought that maybe I'd go down the route of journalism. So as a uh, communications and sociology major. Um, mm. And I think that you know, I grew up in church like so many Korean kids. I think the, the statistic is like 80 to 85% of the Korean population um, back in that time attended church. Mm. Uh, not because everybody was a Jesus follower, but just because when you immigrated, that's where the co- Korean community was the at. Community, yeah. Right. So, um, so, yeah, grew up in church. But I think for me, again, like so many other Koreans that I'll meet, um, I went through I went through sort of my rebellious stage where, you know, in high school, I decided like, hey, you know what? I've been this good church girl all my life. Um, I want to experience some of the world. And so mm. it's so silly when I think about it now, but I really like, I laid out like a 10-year plan. <laughs> where I decided at 16, I was like, you know what? I'm going to, you know, within within limits, I'm going to start, you know, not being such a good church girl. And so I like planned out my rebellion. <laughs> um, I, <love> it. <laughs> yeah. I stopped going to youth group on Fridays And then, um, you know, little things start turning into bigger things And so by the end of my freshman year in college um, I got really good at playing sort of the the undercover good, good girl Like I, mm. I kept my grades up good enough to get into a good college And that's all my parents were concerned about And then they left for the mission field, right? And so in my freshman year of college, I really kind of... Um, I was failing all of my classes like after my first semester in college I was failing out of school I got put on academic probation right away Um, and then after I got the letter that said like you have one more semester to get your act together or else you're getting kicked out of school I think I started to pick up on some of the gracious like Wake-up calls that god was giving me Um, Mm. And I know there are so many worse things that could happen than potentially being kicked out of school But for (laughs) me, it was almost the end of the world um but there were different things that were happening where I just like God started orchestrating things where I started to recognize like there was something different, you know, mm-hmm. that, a different path in my life that, that I should be pursuing. Um, and so my heart changed from wanting to do like investigative journalism type stuff. Um, and I really started looking at like, what does the missions world look like? Like what does it look like to have a passion for racial justice, but also a passion for justice on a grander scale and, mm. um, and so I think that during my college years is when, like, my heart for ministry and my calling to uh, to teach and preach kind of started to come alive. Mm. Um, and then I went to this thing called Urbana.
0: Oh um, yes, this I huge went College too. missions conference. Yes. Yep, I
1: went in two thousand, and um, I heard. Okay, this is one of those uh, you know key moments in your ethnic journey type moments too. So there was a Korean American woman named Susan Chovan Reason who spoke there, mm. and. I realized that it was the first time I had ever seen a Korean American woman preach. Mm, um, mm. I had seen like missionaries come and give testimonies and that kind of thing, but she was preaching in front of an audience of 20,000 students. Wow. And it dawned on me that that I'd never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And then another woman named Brenda Salter McNeil, who mm. I have the privilege of calling a mentor now, um, 20 years later, uh, she spoke on racial reconciliation in a way that just, Powerfully spoke to me, and so wow. I had like a calling type moment at Urbana, where I saw myself represented in Susan jo- Cho, Van reason and then I I heard somebody articulate some of the things that I felt like I was called to in wow. McNeil. So yeah, wow. I look back on that with a lot of fondness, and um, it was at Urbana that I found out about a, uh, a missions organization called World Impact. So I knew I had a heart for racial justice. I knew I had a heart for like urban communities. So. Um, I met somebody um, at one of the booths, like mm-hmm. the thousands of booths. That are there. Yes, yes. And I put my name on a mailing list. And every every month, when I went back home, I would get an update from people at World Impact that was just like, "This is what God is up to in South Central LA, or in different parts yeah. of um, mm-hmm. like urban cities across the U.S." And so, I always had a heart for LA. Um, in my last semester before I graduated from college, I took five years because of that. One year I had to make up for. In <laughs> um, my last year, I came in and did like a weekend visit, and was like, "Here I am, you know. I want to, I want to mm. go wherever you send me, God." So, long wow. story short, I ended up in LA after I graduated.
0: Wow! Well, I'm yeah. so glad that you were in LA. This is so many levels of wonderful. So, yeah. well, okay, yeah. so kind of like exploring a little bit about your your journey, you know, and. I mean, this could come from any point in time of it. What are when you think about like what are some of the painful points of mm-hmm. your Asian American journey, um, or Asian Canadian journey, or your yeah. Eastern Western journey, and and maybe following that up with um, point, points of pain, but also points of pride, like
1: yeah, you know, ethnic yeah. pride.
0: What can you think of a couple examples or anything that yeah. stands out to you? Yeah,
1: uh, you know, I think that they're so interconnected. Um, So I'll start with painful moments. One thing that I instantly think of when you ask that question, I go back to memories of my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, So my grandmother helped raise my brother and I. She came to live with with us in Canada when I was three. Um, My parents were, before they became missionaries, they were sort of the typical uh, Korean grocery store owners. Mm -hmm. So whether we were in Toronto or Vancouver, they always owned a corner store. So they worked long, hard hours. They were gone from early in the morning to late at night. And um, so much of my childhood is just me and my grandma. Mm. And I remember when I was younger, I was always embarrassed of my grandmother. And my grandmother passed away just a few years ago. So I think this is especially tender to me now. Mm. But um, yeah, I just, whenever I think back to the times that as a child, I was embarrassed of my grandmother, it had so much to do with our, our ethnic identity. Like I wouldn't want, my friends to come to my house after school because my grandmother would be making, um, you know, fermented soybean paste into bricks. She'd be drying them outside. So yes. it like lumps of poo outside, <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, she'd be hanging fish outside or mm. you know, there'd always be smells. She was making kimchi, all the smells that I long for now. Mm. Um, but mm. the things that as a child, I, I was always just so embarrassed of cause it was so different. Mm. Um, so those are pain points for me where I, I feel like, oh, like I lament that I, I associated bad feelings to things that I should be so proud of and things that I long for now.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I remember one moment I was in fourth grade. I'm never going to forget this moment, but it's funny to me now. Um, but I remember we were in class and I lived in Vancouver where you know it rains a lot. There's so much beautiful, just greenery everywhere. Mm. And behind my school, Um, was like a forest. And so I remember in the back of my fourth grade classroom, we had big windows and the windows were open. And uh, we're in the middle of class and this kid turns around and taps me on the shoulder and says, Susie, isn't that your grandma? And my grandma was outside picking um, the fern. What do you call them right now? I'm forgetting them right now. It's kosari in Korean, but it's like, it's like fiddlehead ferns that Mm -hmm. you pick and you dry and you put it in like bibimbap and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, she's out there with like trash <laughs> Yes. And I was like, <laughs> I, I I, remember just wanting to die in that moment. I wanted to like oh my disown goodness. my grandmother and be like, nope, that's not
0: my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> but no other Korean grandmas. No right. other Koreans. It's kind of, oh my goodness. Right. Wow. So like my
1: whole class turns around and sees my grandma doing this. But you know, it's funny oh. to me now, But fact then I was so mortified. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah you know that it seems it seems silly, but those those were painful moments for me and then, mm. again, going back to my grandma, this is one that happened maybe just um maybe like six years ago or so. So my grandmother eventually um before she passed for the last three or four years, she had really kind of spiraled in her um Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. and I remember she was um, you know at the beginning of her alzheimer's journey, she there was, it drove me crazy because it, um, or, or I don't want to say it drove me crazy. Um, I want to be more sensitive with my words, sorry. Um, <laughs> it, it was a pain point for me though, because again, going back to sort of the history of um, the Japanese occupation and I think a lot of the healing that needed to happen for my mm-hmm. father's generation and even for me, um, which by the way, my dad, after he became a believer. He, one of his first missions trips was to Japan. And I think that, yeah, that was an incredibly healing thing for him. So I mean, it's it's totally Mm. different now. But Mm. um, when my grandmother was sort of spiraling in her um, Alzheimer's, one word that she said over and over again was arigato gozaimasu. And she would say it all the time to everything. She couldn't, she was not coherent. She wouldn't be answering, like she'd almost just be speaking gibberish. And she would just say arigato gozaimasu all the time. Wow, she could, so for me, the way that I interpreted that was when she was younger, she was not allowed to speak Korean at school, so she wow. only went up to middle school. But because of the Japanese occupation, she was never allowed to speak Korean, she had to speak Japanese at school. So, for that to come back when she's in her 70s and 80s, um, and for me, it was like she's speaking the language of her oppressors, oh. like she. she she couldn't even speak Korean. She was speaking in Japanese and she kept saying, thank you very much in Japanese. And so for me, that was so painful, but there was, again, like, I feel like God stirred up a lot of feelings in me to, to deal with that and what, you Mm. know, surround the surrounding things around that. So it was very insightful, but, um, it was a pain point as well. But I think one thing that was unearthed from that was, um, like the ministry of reconciliation for me is something that I, I genuinely feel like something, um, that I'm called to, even Mm -hmm. when I look at my, my own, um, my own family lineage, you know, and Mm -hmm. and moments like that kind of solidified it.
0: Oh, wow. That is so powerful. I had something kind of similar because the Japanese had invaded China. And so I grew up hearing stories about bombs dropping in the distance and my parents having to flee to the countryside and they eventually Mm -hmm. fled to Taiwan. And um, so so I I think I just because of hearing those stories as a little girl had always associated the Japanese as the enemy because right. they were presented as such. And so Darren is half Okinawan, you know, Japanese right. and and um and so I I remember kind of broaching the topic, you know, with my parents mm-hmm. like, you know, does that even bug you at all. And then, you know, I, I hear back later because they were living in Hong Kong at the time. Like, well, you know, we just bought a Japanese air conditioner, so <laughs> we're fine or something You know, that was their, like their note of like, we're good with that. And then I worried about my grandma, you know, because mm. it was, it more directly affected her. And mm. so, um, but then I, they could not communicate with each other, but my grandma mm. explained to me in chinese i can tell he's a really good man so she she would just oh. keep pushing food toward him <laughs> like that was oh, the way that, right. that i yeah I, I think i similarly my grandma grew up with us and i i i attribute my ability to have whatever chinese level speaking level i have because she lived with us and yeah. only communicated you know in chinese but i remember she would try to go to adult English school to try to learn mm-hmm. a few phrases, you know, mm-hmm. so she'd come back trying to do that. But I, I, that your, your memory of your grandma just spurred in me a memory of my grandma too. And I'm just yeah. like, I'm just so grateful because really she laid down her whole life to help raise the grandkids, you know, and yeah. it was just, um, she did it without complaint you know, and I imagine she was probably bored stiff because there wasn't cable at the time to watch any television shows that were in <laughs> her language. And so she uh-huh. would watch, apparently she would watch Hawaii Five-O and then uh, not understanding a word of it, but she would still t- tell my parents the entire storyline <laughs> in Chinese oh when goodness. they got home from their, you know, being out or whatever. So anyway, so That's yeah. so cute. Yay, oh for, my goodness. yay for grandmas. Yay for
1: grandmas. <laughs> It's funny because my grandmother actually back then is when um, K-dramas were mm-hmm. popular even back then. So when I was in elementary school, I remember my grandma would get like between her and her friends at church. They would circulate like whole sets of VHS tapes. So it would be a <laughs> whole mini series that played in Korea maybe like a year ago, but they would get all dubbed and everything. And, um, and yeah, so they, she'd be constantly watching Korean dramas
0: even back That's then. Awesome. <laughs> so she introduced me to Korean dramas. That's so awesome! Yeah. Oh, that is so great. I think that's one of the things I love about um, how our Asian culture, what we bring in terms of the valuing of the the wisdom that the the senior mm. generation brings. There's just an yeah. honoring of um, the. The older generation, um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's such a a sense of generation that we're we're part of something so much bigger than our own individual lives. So Mm -hmm. we honor those who've gone before us. We are looking behind us with who's coming along. You know, how can we help them and make their life better? And then we link arms because we're not individualistic but collective. And so that's probably one of the things I. I love about being an Asian. So, so points of pain, points of pride. Um, I'm curious for you in your current life and raising daughters and mm-hmm. you know, just how you're navigating this world now. Do you have mm-hmm. leadership principles that you kind of live your life by or lessons that you would want your daughters especially to know, but even your sons, like what would yeah. be some leadership lessons? So okay,
1: I did write down a quote um, anticipating this question, um, mm-hmm. but before I even quote that, um, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was, you know, more than like a, a tweetable phrase or like a slogan. Um, I think for me, in my own journey, um, and what I really hope that my kids can live out is, um, I'm going through this process right now where I'm I'm like decentering whiteness. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to decolonize my mind and I'm, I'm really fighting against the narrative that I think a lot of Asian American kids, especially were indoctrinated into where I think without our parents realizing it, um, a lot of our parents, they meant well, and it, some of it was just for survival, but they wanted us to assimilate so badly that mm-hmm. you, you kind of buy into this idea that the white way is the right way. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's almost like you live your life not wanting to make white people mad or to like be accepted by white people. That's almost like, like I went to, I went to a wedding um, where my friend's dad, she was Chinese, she was marrying a white guy. And her dad, her dad stood up and, and said, um, you're, you're making the American dream come alive by marrying this white guy. And he meant it as a joke, but I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> i <was> like, what <laughs> oh, saying right now? Um, mm. It was kind of like she made it because she married a white guy. Mm. Um, but I think subconsciously, a lot of us still sort of carry those kind of values, and so I, I, for me, because especially because my kids are are sort of a double minority, where they're they're Asian and they're Latin, and um, they're going to be navigating life like wondering, you know, having a lot of different questions about their ethnic mm. identity. Like I really hope that they won't have to live their life centering whiteness. Like they'll mm-hmm. recognize that them in their own ethnic identity, you know, as complex as it may be there, there's Mm -hmm. beauty and there's so much richness from all the cultures coming together. Like even the element of Canadian culture coming in, Yes. Um, you know, like, I I really hope that they value the, the, the built-in multi-ethnicity that's, that's their narrative and they won't Mm -hmm. have to feel like they have to fit somebody else's mold of leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So this quote is actually from Howard Thurman, who's a, um, a well-known Black theologian. Um, but I thought that this was kind of a, a good quote that, that um, complements it. And so he says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs more is people who have come alive.
0: Mm. And so,
1: yeah, I, I feel like it's speaking into like, don't, don't go looking for the world to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, or what it needs from you, like like mm-hmm. recognize the inherent value that you have, um, mm. and hopefully that's rooted in the right things for them, and sure. and then know that they have something to offer. Um, mm. So, I, yeah, and you know when you talk about raising your kids to, um, so my kids are actually my older two kids are in elementary school now, and they go to a dual immersion school. Mm. So ninety right now, ninety percent of their school day is taught in Spanish. Wow. Um, and then they'll eventually work up to a 50-50 model where, they're, where they'll learn English and Spanish. But for us, we really wanted them to get the language down. It was just easier for them to go to Spanish immersion than a Korean immersion, which there's like one in Koreatown. But, <laughs> um, but for us, you know, um, we want them to celebrate their me- Mexican identity and a Korean identity. Um, and I think, um, I think right now they're at a place where I'm gonna have to kind of turn up the heat on knowing what it is to be Korean because they're so mm. like at school it's mm-hmm. so normal it's sure. it, they're not gonna have a problem with being Mexican you know because yeah. there's it's like celebrated in their school so for me now I'm trying to figure out like what's the best way to really um have them celebrate being Korean because even at our church, it, we're a multi-ethnic church, but there's not a there's not a huge Korean population there. Um, so I'm going to have to be really intentional about bringing that in for them.
0: Yeah. Do you have any ideas? Any thoughts of what you're thinking? I know. I you
1: know I want them to be excited about Korean school, but they hear Korean school and they hear <laughs> that it's on a Saturday. So you know, I, I know. think I. This is expensive, but I think it'll be really valuable um, at some point in the near future. I, I hope we can take all the kids to Korea because Korea mm-hmm. is like, I mean, yeah. it's popping right now. You it know, is. Like, it's all over pop culture, and I think that if at the right age they go and they see how awesome it is to be Korean, sure. I mean, one thing that we have going for us too is that you know my kids love Korean food too. Mm. Um, so I think that if they if we can hold on to the right things and they can mm-hmm. you know like at some age I'm sure so that a couple of their friends will will be like, isn't K-pop so cool? And, you know, mm-hmm. those were not things that I had going for me at that age. Sure, so, yeah. I'm more hopeful that they have opportunities to be excited about being Korean.
0: Yeah. I think that there is something to be said about traveling and getting outside of North America, getting yeah. out, you know, just I, I think it centers us very differently when we experience that the world is a lot bigger than yeah. what we know within our four walls or even our own community or our state. I mean, I think sometimes just getting on an airplane and realizing how large our nation right. is, um, there's plenty of room here, like, like space-wise. It's a very, very right. large country, but we right. sometimes start to get into a scarcity mentality when we, yeah. when we don't have a, a proper view of the size of the world and even... Right you know, traveling halfway around the world and seeing people thriving and, you know, just, Mm -hmm. and I think being immersed in a place like going to see Seoul, Korea, landing in the airport, Mm -hmm. seeing how modern Mm -hmm. and amazing um, the technology, the just the advancements, I think it just really is, it shifts. I think that's the same, I, I felt like there was a shift that took place when Crazy Rich Asians came out and yeah. the Asians were uh, poised and positioned as the wealthy mm. lead. You know, like all, they had the power. You know, they right. had the power to buy out the the British hotel that was right. you know, discriminating against them. They could yeah. make those kinds of sweeping moves. That in mm. in the same way, Black Panther. It was like T'Challa did not need anybody to tell him anything and he just could Mm -hmm. carry himself with humility because he knew he came from a kingdom that was like far exceeded Tony Stark, you know? So it's just like, it just shifts things. I think it just shifts things. So I I love that thought that for you and your kids and your family to be able to have that kind of experience. Okay. So shifting really quickly then to Mm -hmm. favorite Asian comfort foods. You can yeah. just, list out, oh okay. just list them out, Susie. Oh my goodness. <laughs> just <laughs> list them out.
1: So Vancouver is known to be a total foodie city. So whenever I go to Vancouver, I have to have good cheap sushi because it's plentiful there. Ooh. Um, I have to have like a good, even just like a good one soup, you know, like you mm. can go into any Chinese restaurant. There's so much good, good mm. Chinese options. Um, but I think for me, like Korean food is always my, my home comfort food. So mm. I'm a sucker for street food. Like, so dapbuki, the spicy rice cakes, mm. uh, we got to go to Korea. Actually, my husband and I as like a pit stop in November. And I didn't, I didn't care about any of the fancy sit down restaurants or anything. I just wanted to hit all the street food. So <laughs> <laughs> That's spicy so cool. rice cakes and like the, on the street noodles, like the, mm. actually there's a lot of fusion there. So like the mm-hmm. udon noodles and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, So, I mean, for me, I know that my palate is, is just naturally more Asian. So any of the, so, so many good ones, but for me, the Korean foods, and if I'm sick, I'll always gravitate towards some kind of Korean soupy, Mm. anything that you can put your rice in and a a soup and a rice with a good side of kimchi. It's got to be a good, well-fermented side of kimchi.
0: Mm. um, Do you make your own kimchi?
1: No. (laughs) Whenever my mom visits, she makes plenty of kimchi to last. And then if we don't have any more, then I'll just, I'll go to the market. It's just so so much
0: easier. Okay. Well, I was going to see if you could teach me, but I love cucumber kimchi. Yeah, like, that's one of the easier ones to make, though. So is that true? That one okay. Picked, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we could like fiddle around sometime and come right. up with some cucumber <laughs> kimchi or something. But that is so great. That is so fun. Yeah. Well, how can people find you, Suzy? Like, where can they connect with you?
1: Uh, Instagram, uh, Suzy K. Gamez. Uh, and then I have linked on my profile, uh, my website, suzygamez.com.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are probably the two two main ways. That is great. And I think I saw recently that you did chapel for Azusa Pacific. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) APU? Yes, <laughs> that that's awesome. an interesting one to go watch.
1: So if you Google my name under Azusa uh, Chapel, I talk about decentering whiteness
0: there. So wow. Okay. Well, you know what? Maybe we can link this onto our show notes as well, sure. so that people yeah. can can see that. And my my nephew actually attends Azusa oh. APU, and he just told me he just messaged me today. He goes, Auntie Viv, um, one of my friends is coming to the event on Saturday. So. Oh, oh good, So, her Love it. his councils or something. So, anyway, so it's just a small okay. world, and I am so glad that in the great big world, I am now connected with you, Susie. So, thank yeah. you so much for being on some days for oh, Thank podcast. you for having me. hope you enjoyed this conversation with suzy gomez thank you all for listening to some days here and subscribing to the podcast thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends and rating and reviewing honestly all of that helps us helps others to find the podcast and uh for those of you that are new to us please take time um, while we ramp up for season three to go back and listen to your favorite episodes again and continue sharing the episode with your friends, we are thinking of ways in the midst of shelter at home um, to serve Uh, the Someday Is Here community. So we will be in touch with you, hopefully with some um, creative ways to stay connected. So stay tuned. If you have not followed us on Instagram, please find us at Someday Is Here Podcast. And we are also on Facebook. We have a Facebook group, and you can join us there as well. Um, But I hope that you are all sheltering in place and staying sane in the midst of the madness going on out there. Um, thank you for being part of this community. Signing off from season two, it's Vivian Mabini and team. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Some Days Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Fan. the sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman, the director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong, and the executive producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here.